tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You don't see it often. The military's Indo-Pacific Command issued a news release yesterday morning about what it describes as an unnecessary aggressive move in the skies by the People's Republic of China. It took place in an area the U.S. considers international airspace. We talked to Danny Roy this morning about the increasingly open political tensions playing out. Roy is a senior fellow at the East-West Center. His expertise is in Pacific security matters, particularly with Taiwan. The news of this incident comes just as a major defense uh, conference kicks off. The Shangri-La Hotel meeting in Singapore officially marks its 20th year. But relations between China and the U.S. are at another all-time low. Here's Roy helping us to understand what's in play with this latest skirmish in the skies. This is actually a long-term chronic problem. You may remember in 2001, there was an incident where there was a collision between the U.S. and a Chinese aircraft. So it's of the same piece with that. So the, the bigger issue is that China doesn't like the United States conducting what's known as close-in surveillance, where U.S. ships and aircraft will operate right up to the edge of what the United States thinks is the legal limit, which is pretty close to China. But China's view is that U.S. ships and aircraft should be far away from the Chinese coast because this is provocative and, and unfriendly. So the Chinese have been pushing back in the usual way, which is intimidating maneuvering. We see the Chinese treat other countries the same way. Chinese ships, for example, will, will collide with and sometimes sink Vietnamese ships in seas that are disputed between the two countries. So it's a signal, like, stay out of my space. Yeah, and it goes along with the verbal signal that the Chinese are making loud and clear, which is that we're an important country now. You need to take our feelings into consideration in the way you deal with us. You have to deal with us respectfully. And this is not, from the Chinese point of view, respectful treatment. Well, we saw the flap over the spy balloon and how the U.S. shot that that down. And that was a, a bit disconcerting. But we've also seen the uh, the rhetoric uh, kind of get ratcheted up, you know, when uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi, you know, visited Taiwan. Um, so th- a lot of the, the tensions building and then easing and building and easing. Yeah, well, it's mostly building now. China has arrived at a point where the Chinese government is insisting that China be treated as a great power, not using those terms necessarily. But the Chinese have told the United States, you need to take Chinese interests into due account. In effect, you need to create space in your domination of Asia for a stronger and more consequential China. And immediate flashpoints issues are the territorial claims by China. I would include Taiwan in that, even though from the PRC's point of view, their argument is that Taiwan is already a part of China, et cetera. But what you see is around China's periphery, there's a, a big swath of disputed areas. And the Chinese government is insisting that the United States and other countries, but mainly the United States, needs to get out of the way and allow China to realize its aspirations for the Chinese view of consolidating China's power and being recognized internationally as a great power. Well, what is it that keeps you up at night? I mean, I worry, you know, I think about my neighbors who moved over to Taiwan during COVID so that their their kids could could spend more time with their grandparents in Taiwan. Uh, you know, I worry about the family and friends that I have in Guam, you know, when we hear, you know, the threats by North Korea uh, about that being a possible target. So, yeah, that worries me. But I don't know. What worries you? Well, there are two kind of flashpoint issues, and they both involve territory, like I mentioned before. One is the South China Sea, where there's this ongoing problem of the Chinese making claims and the United States disputing some of those claims. And the way the United States manifests its non-acceptance of those claims is to sail U.S. ships or fly U.S. aircraft through those areas, and and the Chinese feel compelled to make response. they're, They're telling their people that we own these areas and the United States is insulting us. So we need to make some kind of a gesture that indicates we drove them out. So you can imagine at some point, not necessarily, you know, ordered by higher ups, but an American ship and a Chinese aircraft in one of these areas could step into, you know, maybe uh, taking kind of an action where the other side feels threatened and takes a counteraction. And we have an incident where troops on one or both sides get killed. and And then there's a possibility of an escalation. I think the single most dangerous issue now, though, is Taiwan, where both sides really don't understand how the other side views its own actions. So we're in kind of a spiral where both sides feel like what the other side is doing is unacceptable, and the proper response is to try to intimidate the other side through military signaling into backing down. But 
in both cases on both sides, this has the effect of convincing each side that they need to do more of the same. So we're in sort of a death spiral toward the possibility of conflict over Taiwan. We should then expect to see more of this posturing in the skies as opposed to less of it. Well, what happened in 2001 was the Chinese seemed to be uh, higher up Chinese, not necessarily the units that are carrying this out. See, the pilots are like fighter pilots everywhere. They, they want to show off their bravado, but sometimes they need to be reined in by the higher ups. So ideally, the Chinese higher ups will decide that we don't want another incident like in 2001. The fallout from 2001 was there were some conversations between the two governments, and there seemed to be an understanding that the Chinese would talk to their pilots and try to pull back a little bit from the kinds of really dangerous flying that might result in a collision. So the best thing we can hope for is that on the Chinese side, the top leadership will decide we're not ready for a conflict with the United States right now that might result from an incident like this. So let's send the word down to our bases to tell our pilots to back off a bit. My fear would be that they won't do that, that indeed the the Chinese will see the United States' concern about this issue as an opportunity to press their claims against the United States. In other words, the response will be, if you don't like this, then stop making those close-in surveillance flights and voyages by your aircrafts and ships. That's why the United States is publicizing these kind of videos that you saw on the news this week to try to shame the Chinese, to uh, make the Chinese higher-ups think this is making us look bad internationally, in the hopes that the reaction will be pulling back of this kind of activity, but it may not have the desired reaction. Rather, the result on the Chinese side might be, it's working, so let's keep doing it. That was East-West Center's Denny Roy providing us with some context following an incident in the skies between two fighter pilots. We'll pick up the conversation right after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. I'm Carol Hills. Next time on The World, cloud gaming has the potential to put video games on any device anywhere. We now can reach people that we couldn't reach before. A massive merger in the gaming world has put a spotlight on the future of cloud gaming. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Denny Roy, Senior Fellow at the East-West Center for Context, given the video released by the military yesterday about a close call with two uh, fighter pilots in what the U.S. says was in, was international airspace. Roy specializes in security in the Pacific region. We asked if he thought China was emboldened by the move by Russia to invade Ukraine. Whether it emboldens or gives China pause depends a lot on how the Ukraine conflict goes. I think up until now, there are more reasons to think that it's discouraging to China rather than encouraging to China. We've seen that here's a case where a much smaller country that wasn't expected to put up much of a fight has put up a fantastic fight. We've seen that it's very, very difficult for the the larger country that has numerical superiority and, and all the important weapon systems. It's still difficult for them to win the battle. Things aren't going well. And equally importantly, The international reaction to the Ukraine war was probably the consequences in terms of economic sanctions that Russia suffered, the unity that Europe and the United States showed in levying those sanctions probably far exceeded what the Russians expected. And the Chinese have to think about how they would get a similar reaction, and it might be a stronger reaction than they previously expected in the case of taking action against Taiwan. So 
I think the results so far have been mostly discouraging to the Chinese. And there is a conference later this week in Asia, security conference. I think a lot of those leaders will be in attendance. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so all sides look forward to this every year as an opportunity to hear directly from some of the important military leaders in the region. And typically, both the United States and China will send a pretty high-ranking person to lay out the thinking on current issues from their countries. And it's also an opportunity for side meetings, for example, between the United States delegation and the Chinese delegation. But this year, of course, that's been complicated by the issue of the Chinese representative being under sanctions from the United States. And the United States government pre-announced that the sanctions would not, from the U.S. point of view, prevent a meeting between the U.S. Secretary of Defense and the Chinese Minister of Defense. You know, the Chinese Minister of Defense is under these sanctions. But the Chinese response to that was, we don't want to meet with you anyway. The Chinese see the sanctions as uh, sort of an outrage, as an insult, and they want to see the United States humiliatingly withdraw the sanction in order to get the benefit of meeting with a Chinese leader which is a reaction that China wants to see across the board from the United States. So they're giving us the cold shoulder. We don't want to talk to you. What makes this... We we, we don't want to talk to you until you show proper respect. And what makes this particular conference so different than others? I mean, you track these things very closely. It's more significant this year because relations between the United States and China are at such a low point. So the United States, certainly for its part, and we hope the Chinese as well, are looking for opportunities to at least reverse the trend of deteriorating relations and get back to what can be called kind of a recovery, which is what usually happens when U.S. and China have a, have a bad patch. You know, to hark back to the aircraft collision in 2001, what followed from there was both sides seemingly recommitting themselves to having a constructive relationship. And we saw from that low point of the relationship, relations improved greatly over the next couple of years. The fear now is that we're sort of stuck in a permanent trough. I mean, I think with this pandemic, we saw how we were connected in so many ways, you know, with the economy, you know, supply and demand issues. You know, at the same time, we got through the pandemic and yet things just seem worse. Well, the pandemic showed us that we're connected. Say, for example, the United States and China were connected in many ways, even that Americans didn't realize. But I think the lessons that Americans drew from the pandemic overwhelmingly was that the the connections were harmful to the United States. So the reaction is we need to pull back from relying so much on China for uh, important supplies of medicine and medical gear. And across the board, we're seeing a movement toward a partial decoupling. I have to emphasize partial. Partial decoupling of U.S.-China economic relationship. That is, the United States is trying to reduce its vulnerability by being so heavily over-reliant on China in so many important areas. And the Chinese see that as a manifestation of a previous fear of the United States wanting to contain China, to suppress China from becoming a great power that might threaten America's position in East Asia. Here we are mid-year. As you look down the road, how's the path? You know, we, we, we've seen the news this week that supposedly uh, China has targeted Guam's you know, information technology, trying to hack in uh, because they see that as a, a, a vulnerable spot for the U.S. But you know, as you look down the road for the rest of the year, I mean, we're hearing, oh, possible invasion in 2027. But um, how does it look from where you sit? I don't put stock in these guesses of what year China might attempt to militarily conquer Taiwan. But it's clear that both the United States and China are preparing for the possibility of war over Taiwan. So the Chinese are probing and calculating what are the American weaknesses and making their preparations. And the United States is doing the same thing on our side, trying to to increase Taiwan's ability to defend itself. And as I said, both sides see what the other is doing as indications that the other is intent on war, probably inaccurately. So this is truly one of those tragic movements toward a war that neither side wants kinds of situations. We can only hope that they keep talking and that some of these strained relations ease up a bit. But uh, anything else as you look down, is there anything else that's significant in the coming months? Well, often in these kinds of situations, it takes a kind of a jolt to get both sides to recommit themselves to a constructive relationship. And this may be one of those situations, and we have to hope that the jolt does not escalate into the kind of conflict that neither side is ready for. 
Well, Daniel Roy, thank you so much for sharing your insight uh, into this area, and we will keep our fingers crossed. But thank you. You're welcome. Nice talking to you. That was Danny Roy, whose expertise is in the Pacific region when it comes to security. He was talking about the recent incident with a Chinese fighter pilot in a U.S. jet and the upcoming defense conference in Asia at the end of the week. We'll be right back. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today, we focus our field glasses on the Big Island, home to still active volcanoes Kilauea and Mauna Loa. Lucky for us, they almost never explode, which means they don't send ash and cinder raining down on communities with fatal results. Our our eruptions uh, contain relatively little gas, so lava flows out like molten molasses. We've seen this most recently with last year's Mauna Loa eruption and in past years when the lava from Kilauea flowed down to the sea. Once solid, the surface becomes beautiful, sinuousy, drapey folds, sometimes glinting iridescent in the sun. So we want to know the Hawaiian name for the type of lava that starts out smooth as melted chocolate, but as the surface cools, it forms wrinkles. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nareethawaii.com. Red Hill Revelations, today's reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat, looks at the Red Hill court record. Reporter Christina Jedra has the story. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Yes. So you've been spending a lot of time going through uh, the, the court record, the files. What do you have? That's right. Yeah, I was reading a lot of depositions yesterday and court documents. So this is in the lawsuit um, that the Red Hill families have filed against the Navy for contaminating the drinking water and failing to warn them that it was contaminated even after they should have had kind of enough information to conclude the public was in danger. So what has been filed in court are um, depositions of some of the first people who responded to the crisis in November 2021. And what's interesting is that those people say it was clear right away that what had leaked was fuel and that once people started complaining about their water tasting funny, um, it was kind of clear two and two um, what had caused the problem. Um, And those folks that were deposed, who are people um, in the the Navy's drinking water division, they said they would have warned people right away. And of course, that's not what the Navy actually did. Right. So they knew more about what was going on, but I don't know if they were in denial (laughs) that that this was, uh, uh, you know, something bad had happened here. 
we still don't really know why. Why didn't they tell people there was a risk to the water on November 20th when the leak began? Why didn't they tell people not to drink the water as soon as complaints started rolling in a week later? You know, the Navy didn't really truly acknowledge there was a problem until much later, December 2nd, when they had test results in hand. But those samples had to go all the way to the mainland and the results had to come back. In the meantime, it was obvious that there was a problem. I mean, the high level maybe people could smell it. There's a, a scene in one of the depositions where um, the commander of NASAC at the time, they could all smell fuel coming out of that that captain's bathroom sink. And they said, we need to let people know. And they didn't. And that captain you're talking about, that was uh, uh, Captain Horniak? Uh, Cor- Gordy Meyer. Gordy Meyer. Actually, yeah. Former commander of NASAC. Um, which is the agency in charge of facility maintenance for Red Hill. Okay, so yeah, I mean, the, your story says that he could smell fuel coming from the bathroom sink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there it wasn't. There wasn't really any confusion, I don't think, within those meetings of what was going on. And the plaintiff's attorney, Christina Bear, is saying, you know, they knew right away and they should have warned people. But in her words, that that message hit the Navy spin machine is, is how she put it and um, instead of telling people they just let days pass and thousands of people go to the emergency room before they acknowledged what had really happened well you know you describe a scene in there where you say Captain Meyer stuck his finger in the liquid and said you know there's fuel there right yeah he responded um, right after the leak and tell there was fuel. Someone else said that their eyes were burning. I mean, there was this notion um, in the Navy's or the military's investigation of the issue that people thought there might have been water at first, but I don't see how they can say that. I mean, maybe at at first visual glance, it's liquid. You think maybe it's water, but the people who were there said clearly it was not, you know, it, it was burning their eyes and their skin and you could smell it. You also uh, talk about how uh, that maybe Captain Bert Horniak drank a whole glass and said he didn't taste anything, he didn't smell anything. Right. It almost seemed like some people were in denial because um, on November 28th, Navy Captain Bert Horniak um, went to the well with some other folks to kind of check it out, see if there was a sheen or a smell, and he didn't see anything. He drank a whole glass, and, yeah, according to um, one of the water officials deposed, he said, you know, I... I don't smell anything. I'm sorry. I don't. I kind of don't think anything's wrong. Um, and then, of course, later that day they did shut the well, and it was found to have been contaminated with fuel. And there's a, a, a court hearing later this week. There is. So basically, the attorneys are uh, duking it out over discovery at this point. So they'll be um, handling that tomorrow morning in federal court, and a judge will decide um, whether the plaintiffs can depose Admiral Samuel Paparo, who is the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Plaintiffs definitely want to hear what he has to say, but the federal government is saying he's he's too high-ranking, too important to have to be deposed. So we'll see what the judge says. Okay. So all this is, is playing out this week. But thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedro with today's Reality Check. You can read her story on this issue at civilbeat.org. today in studio is HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio, and we're going to be talking about American Idol winner E.M. Tongi. You also talked with contestants that were on the show previously. I did also talk to Paula Funga and also Reno Anawai as well, as well as uh, Kimi A. Minor. She wasn't on American Idol, but she had a lot to say about E.M. Tongi's win. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, he's just so awesome. I'm sorry. He's awesome. He's very wholesome. It was a very fun interview. Um, He's very wholesome to the point where he apologized for his dog snoring. (laughs) It it was very adorable. But Ian Thongy, he's the first uh, Hawaii-born Pacific Islander to win American Idol. He's Thongin and Samoan. So American Idol, it's been on the air since 2002. It's on his 21st, it was on his 21st season with Ian Thongy, and he was well-known for coming into this episode with his guitar his father just passed away and him just crying and he even made the judges cry with his song uh monsters by james blunt yes Um, that was a very moving really impressive performance just something about his performance and just his aura his presence just really grips people and I think that's why he made it to become the winner of American Idol. Um, you know, he's actually been singing with his dad on YouTube for the past six years, actually. So he's been doing this since he was young. And he was also well known of highlighting the issues that's going on in Hawaii. So when Lionel Richie asked him, you know, why would why on earth would you leave uh, Hawaii? He says priced out of paradise. And so that also kind of puts Hawaii more on the map with the issues that also go on here that maybe people in the U.S. continent doesn't know about. And since he won, uh, there was a podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast that he met with Jelly Roll. Both of these grown men were crying over Ian Thongy's singing. And Jelly Roll has even like talked about possibly working with him in the future. And though it's unclear what's in store for him musically we know that he has a contract with american idol so he's going to be producing some type of music but uh this is what he has to say about what kind of genre that he wants to do but uh, i also want to dive a little bit in you know in a in a country like close to the countryside and i because i really love country music and it it just uh the stories they tell right and i really love the singer-songwriter like jack johnson but leaning more to the countryside and also dab a little bit in uh, Adeline Reggae, and that would be cool. He also wants to dabble in R&B he, and soul as well. He also uh, talked about Josh Totofi as well. Uh, but Ian Thongi isn't the only Pacific Islander who was on American Idol. We had Paula Funga. She was 24 when she joined the third season of American Idol. I remember I was in the fifth grade. This was in 2004 when her episode aired she had this shirt called big girls rock and she also gave the shirts to the judges as well and even though she um, sang this really good song she sang uh, son of a preacher man by i believe it was dusty springfield that's a wonderful song she hit that high note lord lord knows to my surprise she belched it and she hit it perfectly well to me though i'm not a expert on singing but it was bittersweet and the all three judges said no and this is back in the OG days of American Idol where Paula Abdul, Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson were on the show and even though it was bittersweet uh, Paula actually had some insight about what happened behind the scenes and here's what she had to say I definitely 100% know that um, what I look like and my body and like you know my weight had a lot to do with why I wasn't selected. I'm not gonna like beat around the bush here. You know I'm I can be real about it. And I think today in today's world, you know, look how many plus size models we have. Look how many examples we have of like acceptance and like more loving society. I feel like you know and a more open minded, more accepting and tolerant society as well. I think that had a lot to do with the reason I didn't make it through, you know, 100%, because the whole way through, all the producers were crying during my audition process. And, you know, everyone, all the producers were surprised that I didn't make it past those judges. Oh, yeah. It's hard. This is something that we don't get to see. We only get to see just on these reality TV shows or these singing competitions. We only see what has been edited. We never get to see what's behind the scenes. But Paula's journey also inspired other Pacific Islander artists. In season 14, we had Reno Onowai from Daly City, California. He's of Samoan descent. And 
he was even younger than Paula and Ian Tongi when he joined. He was 15 years old when he joined American Idol. And um, if folks don't remember Reno Anawai, I remember he came in with this bow tie. He was playing the ukulele, and he just had this really soulful vibrato. I don't remember the song that he sang, but this is when uh, J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez, Keith Urban, and Harry Connick Jr. was on during that time. So that was season 14. Um, but he's one of six siblings, so he kind of gave like um, kind of a backstory of like growing up in a Samoan family, a very wholesome family. His mom is very hardworking, and he also had this wholesome story about him. And Reno said he was very happy that Ian was paving this way for Pacific Islander artists, and he joined uh, American Idol because he was inspired by Paula Funga and other Pacifica artists who joined American Idol because then it also shows more representation for him. But he didn't get as lucky as Ian Thongi. So here's what he actually had to say about what happened behind the scenes. That attitude is kind of what I carried through my entire journey through American Idol was literally I am the first taste of Pasifika that a lot of these people have. And in Pasifika homes on national television, this is a huge representation, a huge duty that I have to carry my people through. Um, and that was honestly my goal the entire time. And it was never a personal goal for me to win. It was a, a win for the whole, our whole sea of islands, you know what I'm saying? Our, our ocean. Um, so to See, one, speaking to the tokenism, um, that part was mainly that they were trying to tweak a lot of the things I said. Like, um, a lot of people who aren't familiar with Pasifika, um, especially coming from the continental U.S., are only aware or more familiar with Hawaii. So a lot of times, like, they would ask to script some of my interviews with me saying aloha. And I would say, I love my Hawaiian people and my cousins, but one, I'm Samoan. Two, I'm not from Hawaii, so I don't feel it's appropriate for me to say aloha in my interviews. If anything, I would say ta'alofa. Um, so that level of tokenism came also with um, those people or the producers who were handling my home stories not being educated on who we were. Good point. He he fell in. He told me he fell into a state of depression after being on American Idol. He was so young; he was fifteen, just turned sixteen. Um, he, there was a point he didn't want to do music anymore, but he grew up singing in the church. He has a very, very beautiful voice. Um, and also just to have, he said producers have told him that we don't know where, quote unquote, your people fit in mainstream music. And I, I was talking to Kimieo about this, too, and um, a cultural critic named Jeff Chang, he didn't make it on, on air, but you always see Pacific Islanders kind of put in this one genre box and there's always uh, been uh, more diversity in um, Pacifica voices. And um, <clears throat> Pacific Islanders can sing, and they're just natural storytellers. And that's how E.M. Thongi really, like, captured folks. And so, yeah, well, what else did she have to say? Kimmy, I actually um, said they're pushing more boundaries. And here's more about what she had to say. We're pushing creative boundaries. We're breaking away from stereotypes. Also, there's an increase in collaboration and intersectionality between artists, AAPI artists like us, and artists from different backgrounds. And that's exciting because all of these things are just helping to push us forward, right, in this mainstream, having a voice and being heard. And I also know that there's a greater representation of of people like us, of AAPI professionals in record labels and music management, booking agencies, like music industry key roles. And that helps to ensure that our perspectives and interests are considered, right, in the decision-making processes. Yeah, I mean, really interesting to hear uh, what these musicians had to say about this whole process. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We've been talking with HBR's Cassie Ordonio. She's been taking a closer look at the recent win by uh, E.M. Tongi on the American Idol show and how those in the local music industry are looking at his rise to fame. Support for HPR comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to the community's health, providing vaccinations that help to protect against COVID-19. Learn more by calling Queen's Vaccination Line at 808-691-2222. 
I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marsh Cafe, we catch up with the latest from Mana Up and learn about their cohort eight. We'll also hear from a couple of their portfolio companies and learn how they scale their local brand to the rest of the world. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Kona Coral Society, presenting Yubilate Deo's Hawaii Premiere by Dan Forrest, and Chris Fraley's Island Home Awakening, June 4th, 4 p.m. at Hilton Waikoloa, konakoralsociety.org. now for one of my favorite parts of the show. Today we've got the call of one of Hawaii's most common migratory ducks. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Koloa Mapu. Here's your mind a minute. Koloa Mapu, also known as northern pintails, are one of the most widespread ducks in the world. They're considered to be indigenous in Hawaii, meaning they're naturally found here as well as other places. In Hawaiian, koloa means duck, and mapu means windblown, or wafted in with the wind, perhaps because they would regularly show up in Hawaii with the trade winds every August, making their very duck-like calls. They have particularly long necks and long, pointy tail feathers that really stand out and are what give this species their English name of pintail. Koloa mapu are sexually dichromatic, meaning males and females have different colored plumage. Males in breeding plumage have dark brown heads and a distinctive white line going up the back of their neck, while females are more of a mottled brown. They breed in the spring and summer from the west coast of North America up to Alaska and even Siberia. Like most other ducks, they lose all their flight feathers and can't fly for about a month soon after breeding. Then, when the new feathers grow in, they begin their long journey to their wintering grounds. In Hawaii, Koloa mapu may be found in any shallow freshwater or intertidal wetland habitat, where they feed mainly on seeds, aquatic grasses, and invertebrates. Before 1960, they were reported to number in the thousands across the islands, but now average in the low hundreds, most likely due to loss of their wetland habitats. Protection and restoration of wetlands would likely lead to an increase in Koloa Mapu in Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina for 30 years. More information at hawaii-forest.com. to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we described a certain kind of lava that forms wonderful ropey, billowy, or drapery-like folds. The flow usually advances in a series of small lobes and toes that continually break out from a cooled crust. We wanted to know what this kind of lava was called, and if you said pahoy hoy, you, you got it right. The word comes from the Hawaiian verb hoy to paddle. So think about the swirls that paddles make in the water. Typically, this type of lava is found on the Big Island down by Kalapana and on Maui in Haleakala Crater. It's much friendlier to hike uh, uh, on than Hawaii's other type of lava, uh-uh, which is a jumble of razor-sharp, loose boulders that come from flows with rough surfaces composed of broken lava blocks called clinkers. 
If you happen to be on the Kona side of the Big Island, you can visit a Pohoihoi Beach Park and wait along the shoreline made up of Pohoihoi lava. And the winner today, Travis Sherman from Makiki. You got it right. We got lots of calls on this one, but Travis had the fastest fingers. That's today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Oahu-born Milo uh, Maharlika continues to set the bar high for talented kids from Hawaii. Last year, we spoke to him about creating NFTs, non-fungible tokens, during the Internet's crypto craze. This year, the nine-year-old was cast as Gavrash in the touring production of Les Miserables. He is one of the first actors of Filipino heritage to play the role. You could say acting is in his genes. His father, Ajax, graduated from the University of Hawaii's Academy of Creative Media and worked in Hawaii's film industry for several years. The conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to talk to Milo and Ajax from their hotel room on their current stop, Seattle. Tell me about your character and a little bit about him. So Gavrosh is basically a young revolutionary and Lame is a Rob. He he is charismatic, he's a born leader, and he wants the best for his people because they're not being treated well by the government. So they, he just really wants to change the world, like me. I was just gonna ask you that. Do you think that you are similar or different to your character in real life? I think I'm actually really similar to him because I think I feel like he has the same exact energy as me. Like, he's so fun and such a cool character to play, and he's um, really funny and he's char- charismatic. And your character is a young boy that was sent to live on the streets, and the play takes place during the 1832 rebellion in Paris when many people are going hungry and struggling to stay alive. Yeah. Today, very different in many ways, right? We have iPads, we have video games, we have fast food restaurants. How are you able to transform into the character? So how I transform into the character of Gavrosh. So I do like maybe a little character study and then like it really just like kind of transforms me a little bit. And every time I speak, I try to be like Gavrosh and like, even outside of the theater, and I'm kind of uh, method acting almost. Like, I'm being Gavroche in a situation where I really don't need to, but it really helps my acting, so I could do it great when I'm doing the show. Do you have to speak in an accent? Do you have to speak in a French accent? Mm, we don't do French. We just do okay. our normal voices. But just here's, normal. A, okay. here's a funny story about the accent. So... The funny story about the accent, so when I was at the callback, I would practice it in a British accent because mm-hmm. in the movie with Hugh Jackman, he all of them are Cockney for some reason, <laughs> and I practice it in a British accent, but then they asked for a normal accent, and I got really scared because I never prepared in that kind of accent before, mm-hmm. so... I, I actually did it pretty good though because they were little they were teaching me like little parts of it like mm-hmm. don't say push push posh posh. I wonder if it would be kind of cool to do it like in a Filipino accent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> they should make a they should make they should, they should make a lamez Philippine like lamez API. That, that'd be yeah, no. fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be fun. And to be cast in such a well-known production and to travel around the country performing it, it's a pretty big deal. How did you get the role? So basically, what I forgot to say, we were in Thailand for a little bit, and I would do the script, or I would I read the script one day, and I liked the script for Les Miserables, the movie with Hugh Jackman. And then I watched the movie, which... I really loved because one of my favorite characters was Gavrosh because he was such a he was such a cool character. So I was just like dreaming about what it would be like to play Gavrosh in a movie or theater show. So then when we went to Los Angeles, California, my agent, DDO artist, 
they invited me to audition for the role of Gavroche, and I was jumping up and down in our living room because it was an amazing opportunity. So then here comes the audition process. So I had a week to put my self-tape together, and then I had a musical theater coach who coached me on the songs. Her name's Jet Wilder, and then I did the self-tape, and it was pretty good. And then exactly one week later, they gave me a callback. And I was jumping up and down again in the living room with my family because the special thing about this callback is that it was in New York City. So I'd basically never been there before and it was just like a dream come true. And if you make it to New York City, you can make it anywhere. When we got to New York City, I was really nervous because it was just one step closer to getting the the role. So. I did it, and then I came out, walking out of the room, and I was like, I'm not for sure <laughs> that I got this. He was like, I don't know. He's like, I was like, about, I don't know, I don't know. But he was like confident, happy, but but he was just like, I don't know, I have no idea. <laughs> it was funny. So, yeah, then we got, we went back to, we left, we celebrated, we got some, what did we get to eat? We got poke, and uh -huh. we got cookies. Yeah, and then we got to the hotel, and I said, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm so proud of you because, hey, we got us to LA, we're in LA, now we're in New York, you're doing, you're living the dream, right? This is a part of it. And he's like, you, what do you mean? You don't think I'll, I'll get it? <laughs> and then, so there's a confusion. I was like, no, that's not what I meant. So he's like upset with me. And then as soon as like, we're talking about what I, I meant by that, like, I'm proud of you. And then his mom calls and then. She said, you got it, Milo, you got it, you booklet is wrong. And then I started crying, and I, was, and I, kept, and I said to my dad, I told you I'd get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then we celebrated in Times Square. He was, we got I was cheesecake. dancing in the snow. Yeah, and got cheesecake, and yeah, we, it was just like a yeah. really I got, blessing, we, huge yeah. blessing. And Ajax, you've been in the Hawaii film industry for a long time. You've done a lot of work here. What was it like for you to see your son get this part? Oh, for me, it was just like really mind blowing and inspiring at the same time. And like, you know, we always go into auditions is do your best and, and see what happens. But I think what's happening with him is like, He's been around it for so long. He's gotten the hours in since he was a baby just by being around artists or actors and in the entertainment world. So it's, it's just like kind of like normal, right? But then when you, he got it, it was just like, it made us all very proud and just excited for him. And, you know, <laughs> it was a dream come true for all of us. To see your child, to see your son love the same things that you love and, and be able to be successful in it, that's a huge deal. Yeah, it's, it's huge Like to see him doing it, doing it in the theater world, too, because we always teach him art, right? But you never know what kind of art form he's going to take. And since, like we said, we work in the film industry in Hawaii, I always thought it was going to be TV and film. But for him to do musical theater, that's like taking kind of what we started with him or what we surrounded him in. And then he's just like making it his own thing. And so that's himself, right? Just singing. And cause like I'm not a singer, but <laughs> this guy can, loves it. I know? love musical theater. Can you give me a little bit of look down? Okay, uh, look down and see the beggars at your feet. Look down, look down upon your fellow man. How do you do? My name's Gavroche. These are my people. Here's my patch. Not much to look at. Nothing posh. Nothing that you call up to scratch. This is the land that fought for liberty. Now when we fight, we fight for bread. Here is the thing about equality. Everyone's equal when they're dead. Take your place. Take your chance. Be the friends. Viva France! Oh, that's awesome. Well done. Well done. And I know you're performing four shows a week, but I know you're also on call just in case something happens and they need yeah. you. Does it feel like work or are you still having fun doing it? I'm still having fun doing it because, it, like I said earlier, it's, I mean, it's just basically being me. But I'm just singing, really. And I love singing, so... It's really just being me. I consider it a little bit as work because I need really need to be professional, but the acting part, it's really just being me. And do you still get nervous at all, or are you like, I got this? Well, when, on my first few shows, I was a little nervous, but when I was 
doing it more, I was a, I was really comfortable with it now and way easier because the first few times you get a little nervous because what if you screw something up and you don't know what to do. And I, I know that you've been traveling around for a few months now. I know you've been down the East Coast and now you're heading to do a bunch of West Coast dates. Of all the cities that you've performed in, what's been your favorite so far? So I have two cities that I really like. Washington, D.C. It was basically walking in a history book. (laughs) And the second is Seattle because my dad has so much family from here and it's just amazing. (laughs) Ajax, what are you guys going to do after his part of the tour is over? Are you guys going to go back to Thailand? Are you going to come home to Hawaii? LA. I know that's the thing. That's uh, we're just going with the flow right now. He wants to extend, so like I want to extend. St- he wants to he wants to go longer, but you know, we said we have to take it six six months at a time. So we'll see what happens. You, you know, it's hard to predict that. And then after that, we'll probably be back in California and LA first. And you know, the more love and support we do get from Hawaii, though, and you know, it's like makes us miss Hawaii even more. You know, we miss our family, our friends. Just even seeing E.M. Tongi, you know, mm-hmm. do his thing. It's It's been inspiring to see that. And so we really want to come back at some point. Yeah. Milo, when your time with Les Miserables is over, at, at whatever point that might be, what do you want to do next? Do you want to continue pursuing acting? Do you want to do more musical theater? Do you want to try and see what you could do in TV or film? I'm really going to just continue acting and singing and dancing and I want to get into maybe more like movies and TV shows and I also want to maybe do more Broadway things like Oliver as Artful Dodger or Lion King as Young Simba. (laughs) And one day I want to go to Juilliard and I would also love to win an EGOT one day for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony. And... My last goal is to change the world what, like I'm doing right now because <laughs> I'm inspiring other kids that look like me or are from Hawaii or the Philippines. And I'm a good example to show that they can achieve their dreams, too. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me this morning. I really appreciate your time. And I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. Oh, that was great. That was nine-year-old actor Milo Maharlika and his dad, Ajax, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We have a link to tickets to the West Coast leg of Les Miserables on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to pay a visit to a rail station that's about to open for business. What are your hopes for rail? Plan to ride the train when it opens to see what you've been paying for all these years? Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to listen back to something you heard, you can find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.